Uh, let's ask God to help us with his word. <coughs> Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that your word contains all we need to know uh, to trust our Lord Jesus and live godly lives that please you. Help us now to receive its instruction as it is, uh, the word of the living God, and give us wisdom in applying it to our own life together. Help us to test all things, uh, to hold on to and be changed uh, by what is true and uh, to leave behind uh, those things that are not. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, about uh, uh, this time last year, our congregation was going to elect two well-qualified men to the eldership, uh, but ended up electing only one because your minister had created confusion about membership and then actually not checked carefully who was a member. So you know ministers stuff up, make mistakes, sometimes very publicly, sometimes very embarrassingly. Ministers make mistakes and ministers sin. Uh, they are not exceptions to the universal sinfulness of humanity of which scripture speaks. Certainly no one is righteous on the earth who does good and never sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. In this, the fourth and final talk in our series about pastors, we're going to answer from Scripture these two questions. What do you do when your minister makes a mistake, when an issue arises in your relationship with him because of something he's done or not done? So what do you do when your minister makes a mistake and what do you do when your minister sins? Uh, both, of course, mistakes and sins show your minister is less than perfect, uh, just like you. And both uh, disappoint and can frustrate, and both, because of the minister's public role, can affect many people. So how should you respond? Now, for our purposes this morning, mistakes and sin, while related, will be distinguished because there's a willfulness in sin and so mistakes and sin need different responses. But we do need to ask both questions, for both happens, ministers sin and ministers make mistakes. So what do you do when your minister makes a mistake and what do you do when your minister sins? Now these are questions it's always helpful to know the answers to, for pastors and teachers will always be a part of congregational life. Uh, the context in which you'll live out your Christian life and the impacts of a minister's failings are amplified because of the role they fulfil in a congregation. They affect not just your own relationship with the minister but can affect the whole tone of uh, church. And engaging with and answering those questions will also give a wider benefit for knowing how to respond to a minister's mistakes and sins gives guidance to our responding to each other's mistakes and sins as we live the Christian life together. And how we respond to each other's failings is an important part of the culture of a church, of making it either an encouraging or discouraging place to be. Uh, but as in the rest of this series, we also need to engage with these questions because of our particular circumstances. 
So we've started the process of finding a successor to me and no matter how hard your selection committee works, they will just find yet another imperfect minister. And in a transition to a new senior pastor, uh, there is lots of opportunity for someone coming into a church our size who have got used to a minister who's been around for a while. There's lots of opportunity for the new person to tread on toes or for us to be unsettled and anxious about change and therefore to be easily critical. And secondly, how you respond to a minister's mistakes can have an impact on their sustainability. You see, there will always be differences and why things can be done better, but just as is true for you, it's true for ministers. Conflict and criticism can be wearing. It is helpful to know how to handle difference, mistakes and sin well so that we can be an encouraging, not discouraging place for our ministers to serve. And what I'm going to do is look at three passages, 1 Timothy 5, Matthew 18 and Colossians 3, working this morning from the most severe to the most commonplace, from serious sin to the culture we want to create in all our relating to each other as frail and finite people, people who have different patterns of relating and where none of us will be perfect until we rise with Christ. So let's start with 1 Timothy 5. Paul's guidance to Timothy about what to do when an accusation is brought against an elder in a context where we know he is talking of elders who labour in preaching and teaching. Don't accept, he writes, an accusation against an elder unless it's supported by two or three witnesses. Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favouritism. So here we see, first off, that ministers and elders must be publicly accountable for their teaching and life. And also some principles are laid down for how a complaint against a minister is to be dealt with. And so verse 19, it must be dealt with fairly. The requirement for two or three witnesses is the requirement of God's law for establishing the truth of any charge. One witness cannot establish any iniquity or sin against a person, whatever that person has done. A fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So ministers are entitled to the same due process as anyone. There must be two or three witnesses and they are a witness to the wrong teaching or behaviour, not just to someone's report of sin. So let's say someone says, I've seen that minister drunk at a party. Well, you need at least another who has witnessed the minister being drunk before you accept the accusation, not just someone who can testify that they heard someone else say, the minister was drunk. This provision protects the minister from spurious or malicious allegations, from being the target of those who want to undermine the minister's authority in the congregation. And this is needed, for sometimes there can be a falling out with a strong-willed person who can be determined then to bring the minister down and acting on single accusations can empower their malice make the system an avenue for harassment. But if there is sin, either episodes of serious sin or persistent sinning, then that is to be publicly rebuked. 
Now, the sins Paul has in mind are probably the ones he's addressed in this letter. False teaching and the division it brings. The love of money that he'll rebuke the false teachers for. The stirring up of controversy, the slandering of opponents. And also the emergence in the minister's life of those behaviours Paul has already taught would disqualify from the eldership, from the ministry. Drunkenness, violent and aggressive behaviour, the provoking of controversy and division, love of money, unfaithfulness to his wife as he has one, sexual immorality. Such sin is not to be swept under the carpet. The behaviour has to be publicly acknowledged as wrong, inconsistent with their Christian profession and responsibilities. For if there are witnesses... This is known behaviour, public behaviour. A failure to rebuke the behaviour publicly might lead people to thinking it was somehow acceptable and that it was not important for those who are Christ to live a godly life. By contrast, public rebuke helps all to fear, to reckon such behaviour as inconsistent with following Jesus, behaviour that could separate them from their saviour and has no place amongst God's people. And public rebuke encourages people to turn away from it. And public rebuke will help the other elders to be diligent, to live up to the trust placed in them. And that will be good for all. It is healthy to hold office bearers to account. And this instruction should, says Paul, be followed impartially. And notice the solemnity of his insistence on this. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favouritism. Corruption in the leadership affects the whole life of the church and everyone in it. It is important to expect godliness and faithfulness in leaders and the requirements for fair treatment, that is, for integrity in dealing with complaints against ministers, mustn't be undermined by prejudice, by prejudgment, where the outcome is decided before the case is even heard. For that prejudgment would suggest that the discipline process is just a device for the more powerful to get rid of someone they don't like, not keeping the church faithful to its Lord. Oh, and the discipline process mustn't be undermined by favouritism, where people are treated more leniently, perhaps spared public rebuke, because they are liked more than their accuser, than, than the accuser, or the ministry depends on them, or they're so gifted, because of course that favoritism will communicate that we set the standards in the church and that what matters is pleasing us, not God. The process must conform to the character of the God whose church it is, who is a just and impartial judge. Speaking of the judgment to come, Paul writes in Romans that there is no favouritism with God and he repeats this truth in Ephesians, reminding masters that their Lord treats all his servants, slave or free, impartially. There is no favouritism with him. The way we conduct ourselves in our life together should reflect the character of our God. And then in 1 Timothy 5, Paul goes on to suggest that prevention is better than cure, that Timothy should exercise appropriate caution in ordaining people to the eldership. 
for it takes time, verses 24 and 25, for someone's true character to emerge, their character seen in their deeds. And as an aside, uh, that's something you should reckon with in getting a successor. Get good references from those who've witnessed a person's ministry over time. So the principles are clear in dealing with accusations against ministers. Accountability, fairness, impartiality, discerning caution. How do they get expressed amongst us when we have an accusation uh, against uh, a minister? So a couple of things. Firstly, some treat this as a formula for dealing with every circumstance of an elder or minister sinning, as if it is exhaustive instruction. And they can combine this with a misunderstanding of 1 Corinthians 6's teaching that we should not be taking our business to court before unbelievers. They combine it with 1 Corinthians 6 to suggest that any complaint against a minister must be dealt with in-house and anything else is ungodly. But there are other scriptures which tell us we should be subject to the governing authorities appointed for our good. And 1 Corinthians 6, when you read it, deals only with civil, not criminal matters. Criminal matters, and that includes a range of sexual crimes, but also domestic and family abuse, must be reported to the police. And the law of our land requires, as all of you who have done safe church training know, mandatory reporting of anything to do with child abuse whether it's sexual, physical, emotional and psychological abuse or neglect. Any suggestion of sexual misconduct with a minor must be reported and the investigation left to others. You don't wait for two or three witnesses and it would be sin to do so. We don't deal with these things internally. And it's especially important when you're talking about ministers who have a power, who have power in a congregation that such allegations are investigated externally by people who have skill in gathering evidence about behaviour that, while repeated, is often in secret. So these things we report to the safe church unit and to the appropriate government agency, either directly if we think there's immediate risk of harm or through the safe church unit. And in our context, of course, you might talk to another pastor or elder. And if you haven't done the training, uh, the safe church training, it's actually good for us all to do it because it raises awareness in the whole congregation. And if you're unfamiliar or you don't know where to go, the safe church policy and contact numbers are actually on the notice board and they're available on the web for any to find. Such conformity to the law while it concerns shameful conduct in a person who has a position in author of authority in the church, does much more for the church's reputation than any misconceived attempt to deal with these things in-house. So this is not exhaustive instruction and mustn't be used to prevent obedience to the law and protection of the vulnerable. But secondly, this passage, yes, it gives principles but not a lot of detail about process. If it's not a criminal matter or a mandatory reporting of child abuse matter, if, for example, the concern is sexual immorality between consenting adults, you know, a minister having an affair, or false teaching or bullying or abusive behaviour, 
Who hears the evidence? Who pronounces the judgment? What is the range of sanctions that can be applied? How does it work? The details are not in the passage. But because the prospect of ministers sinning in this way is not theoretical, in my time I've seen both sexual immorality and false teaching in ministers in our denomination. And because history is full of ministerial failure, starting with Judas, you should not be surprised that the denomination has well worked out and tested answers to all those questions about evidence and judgment and sanctions, answers embodied in the process prescribed in our Code of Discipline, which is available on the General Assembly of Australia website. And this, again, is one of the advantages of belonging to connectional churches, belonging to a denomination. And so when an accusation concerns an ordained minister who has a seat on presbytery, the process starts with making a complaint about the behaviour to presbytery. That's right, presbytery. For the ministers ordained by the presbytery and accountable to the presbytery, that is, other ministers and elders in our geographical area, whereas elders, you make the complaint to session. Now, it's a good thing that we can complain to presbytery because it brings more resources and experiences to bear than an individual congregation can, while at the same time protecting both the congregation and the minister from either manipulation or local power plays. And you can either go directly to the presbytery through the presbytery clerk, or you can get help with bringing your complaint to presbytery from another pastor or the session clerk or the safe church unit. On receiving the complaint, they'll investigate seeking to uphold those principles of fairness and impartiality. And if there's sufficient evidence, they'll appoint one of their number to bring it to trial before the presbytery. And then a range of sanctions can follow if the charge is proven, going from rebuke to deposition and excommunication. So there is a proven process for dealing with the failings, with the sins of ministers. But thank God, uh, most of the concerns and disappointments people have with their ministers are less serious. What do we do when, for example, you think the minister hasn't listened properly to your concern when you're having that initial conversation or he's not done what he said he would do or you're concerned about the language that he's using, in all of which he may have wronged you? What do you do? Well, what does our Lord say? If your brother sins against you, Go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. And if he doesn't pay attention to the church, let him be like a Gentile and tax collector to you. 1 Timothy 5, the passage we've already considered is an application to pastors who sin repeatedly and persistently of the final stages in the process our Lord describes in Matthew 18. But now, in a sense, we're back at the beginning of the process. You think your brother has sinned against you. So, says our Lord, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And so you seek the minister out, you have a conversation, you go and talk with him. And, of course, there may be a range of other concerns, perhaps not falling clearly into that sinned-against-you category, 
but which suggest to you the minister's failing in his role and which trouble you. Concerns at the inadequacy of his response to some event, like the COVID pandemic or an incident at church, or the concerns you have about the behaviour of another person or a failure in process that's frustrating you. All are issues in your relationship with the minister. And again, our Lord's instruction guides us. We need to go and talk. Or you might have disagreement with the minister over some particular interpretation of scripture or some emphasis or lack of it in the teaching. Disagreements which, if left unaddressed, can fester into suspicions either about his orthodoxy or his capacity. Again, you need to go and talk. Oh, sometimes it's just thought that the minister could do things better, maybe dress more appropriately in a colour other than blue, or keep his home better because currently he seems to show a lack of awareness about how people perceive him. That happened to me at my first appointment where I was encouraged by an elder to put a bit more effort into cleaning my shoes and uh, reminded to mow my front lawn. Uh, Ministers live public lives. But again, all issues in relationship and you need to go and talk. So let's talk about that talk now. So first, it's talking to not talking about. Now, you may need to talk to a trustworthy friend to, in a sense, test and clarify your perceptions of what's going on. But going about and talking to others about how the minister has wronged or failed you is not helpful to anyone. It's not helpful to the minister whose reputation you're undermining. It's not helpful to the congregation whose respect for and trust in the minister will be eroded And it's not helpful to you because it resolves nothing and gossip and slander are sins. Listen to the way Proverbs speaks about slander and gossip. Whoever gossips separates friends. Gossip breeds division amongst those who are close. And Proverbs 10 tells us it's better to discipline your tongue than be a fool and sin. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips and whoever spreads slander is a fool. When there are many words, sin is unavoidable, but the one who controls his lips is prudent. Better to keep quiet, not keep on spreading rumours and gossip than be thought a fool. So let's say my successor comes and he does or says something that you think not right, something different. If it's troubling you, Go and talk to him. Don't start discussing amongst yourself his perceived failings. And if you hear that talk starting, don't share in it. For a person with understanding, says Proverb, keeps silent. Instead of spreading that talk, shut it down. Encourage the person to go and talk to the minister and others not to repeat what's been said. But at this point, you might say, talking to the minister is hard. He's the minister. There's a significant power and experience gap between us. And I'm afraid I won't get a fair hearing. Now, I've heard that said about me. And it's true that there is a difference often in experience and power between a minister and other members of the congregation. It's a structural difference based on the authority given to ministers to carry out their responsibility in the congregation to teach God's word. And it has its origin in the giftedness, training and testing 
of the minister. So there are real differences. And it's also true that there are cases which we've already talked about, cases of abuse and bullying, where you shouldn't approach the minister concerned, but go to another pastor or elder or the safe church unit. But if your concern is not those things, it may not be easy, but a conversation with the minister should happen. For this is the way our Lord tells us to deal with an issue in our relationship with another. And if you're anxious, you can take another person with you. And an awareness of the difference in age and responsibility, if they're there, is not a bad thing. It can be helpful in facilitating an appropriate conversation. And scripture encourages to have such an awareness. When Paul instructs Timothy to be conscious of people's age and place in society when relating to them. Where to live by scripture. And so while it may not be easy, have the conversation. And as you heard, scripture provides a next step if needed. If he doesn't listen, take one or two others with you. Come back with support. But why assume defeat? Hopefully the same spirit is at work in the minister is this, that, that is this work in you, moving us both to want to do God's will and the conversation may do good. Hopefully the minister was aware that something was not quite right or is willing to be made aware and will be grateful for the opportunity to explain or seek forgiveness to restore the relationship with you. Have the conversation. Speak to your brother. But do come to that conversation with your minister self-aware. Just as in any conversation with another where you're suggesting fault or failure, you should have reflected on your motivation and your appropriateness to have the conversation. And let me suggest three things you ought to be aware of as you come to speak to your minister. Firstly, you should be conscious of your own sinfulness. This is what our Lord encourages. Do not judge so that you won't be judged, for you'll be judged by the same measure with which you judge others and you'll be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but don't notice the beam of wood in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye? Hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your eye and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Now, awareness of your own sin won't change the fact that the minister might have sinned against you, but it will give you humility and graciousness, a graciousness that arises from your own need of grace. And secondly, come conscious of your own investment in your congregation. You see, generally churches are invested communities. It really matters to most of us how church life is conducted. It reflects on the reputation of the Lord we love and has an impact on our own and our family's spiritual well-being. So we have expectations about how church should function and can have strong views about what ought to be happening or not happening or on what the minister ought to be doing and how he should be doing it because we reckon he's the one responsible for shaping our common life. And that investment can affect the way we feel about a minister's perceived failings and the passion with which we express ourselves. Now, I think we ought to be invested 
But sometimes with this investment, even small differences can take on great significance. Small failings register great disappointments and initial misunderstandings cast a long shadow over the relationship which can all be out of proportion to the offence. And thirdly, come conscious of your own context. This is a call for self-knowledge. Sometimes when we're particularly upset about something happening or not happening at church, there can also be a lot else going on in our own lives, things that are not welcome and we can't control. But church is an environment where we think we should be able to control how we're treated and what happens. Again, what's going on in our lives does not change whether a minister has or has not sinned against you, but it can change the intensity with which you feel that failure or the way you think it's indicative of the life of the whole church or the competence of someone's service. So have the conversation, but come to the conversation aware of your own sin, of your investment, and of the effect of what else is going on in your life, on your interactions, and come expecting a conversation. Now, it may be very straightforward. You raise the issue and the minister recognises he spoke in ignorance or he knows he lost his patience or whatever and asks for forgiveness. But depending on what is the issue, the minister might want to defend his interpretation of the passage or explain the context or the motive uh, for his comments or decisions. He might want to clarify with you the wrong you say has been done or discuss with you how you think the matter should have been handled and whether that would be feasible. Now, hopefully that will be a helpful conversation, at the least increasing understanding on both sides. And as neither you nor your minister has been gifted with infallibility, well, it's probably a necessary conversation. Remember, being listened to is not the same as being agreed with. Our society tends to think that, but being listened to is not the same as being agreed with. As Proverbs 18 says, the first to state his case seems right until another comes and cross-examines him. You know, we can be sure we're right, but someone with more information or understanding of the circumstances may see things differently. And recognise that especially if it concerns how the minister or session acted in response to an issue involving someone else, it may be a conversation that has real limits where there are things the minister knows that cannot be repeated. And that can be particularly hard when someone's had to be rebuked or has left the congregation saying all kinds of things about the minister. But to protect the privacy of others and also to preserve fairness the minister can never in that circumstance defend his own actions or the actions of session. So talk to the minister, not about him, but talk. Trust that the Lord in his word is giving you the right way to handle an issue in your relationship with your minister. Come to that conversation self-aware. Come expecting a conversation, not just to be agreed with. <coughs> and though it should not need saying, Come in love. Sometimes because we think it's the minister's job to get things right or that he's there to love us or we feel deeply betrayed by some unkind word or oversight on the minister's part because we've idolised him, 
or because it's thought their perceived institutional power makes them invulnerable, ministers can meet a lot of anger and frustration, either directed at them or the church generally. But there is no exception to the need to speak the truth in love. It includes speaking to the minister. And so you should be thoughtful about the motive and the manner and the mode and the timing of your conversation. Consider your motive. Are you talking to promote reconciliation with someone who's wronged you? Are you seeking good in the conversation to help the minister to be a more faithful follower of the Lord Jesus? Or is it a desire to get your own way or vindication? Consider your motive. Consider your manner. Are you speaking in love or anger? Is it a conversation where both can listen and speak or are you just seeking an audience for a monologue of grievance? Consider your motive, your manner and the mode of your conversation. Is it going to be face to face? You see, I'll never engage in any pastoral matter by text and rarely by email unless it's a very defined doctrinal question. You see, too much is lost. And the potential for missing things like the emotions involved or for misunderstanding is too great with text and email. Even telephone calls are very limited in what they convey. Expect a face-to-face conversation. And consider the timing of your interaction. If it's important, it's important enough to make a time to talk about it, not to try and deal with it in passing. Sunday on the way out of church won't work. It'll just increase your frustration because there's a lot going on. Sending an email on a Sunday evening is not going to actually work either because a minister's capacity to engage with things is pretty shot by Sunday evening. And a Sunday night email is actually just a great way to ruin the day off. Send it on Tuesday. Remember, while the minister occupies a public office, you are dealing with a person someone who in the context of Matthew 18 is described as a brother, a brother whose public role can make them vulnerable. Ministers and their families, as I've said, live very public lives and often it can be a minister's experience. Now let me say it has not been mine, but I talk to other ministers. It can often be a minister's experience that congregation members can feel free to comment on a whole range of things both in their work and their life, that you would probably not welcome being raised in your own workplace. Well, you might think that encouraging self-awareness to come expecting a conversation and insisting on love is special pleading by a minister on behalf of ministers to make you reluctant to talk to the minister or protect them from difficult conversations when they've sinned or failed expectations. Not so. A congregation's health depends on having those conversations, resolving misunderstandings, building trust through hearing the reasons why certain things are said and done and all having the humility to listen and repent where wrong. But asking for self-awareness, a willingness to listen as well as to speak, a conversation that's characterised by truth and love is not special pleading. Our dealings with our ministers should be an expression of what we want all our relating to be characterised by, an expression of who we are to be. And Paul speaks of who we are to be 
in Colossians 3. As God's chosen one, holy and loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And if we are this kind of person, our relating will be characterised by forbearance, forgiveness and love, including our relating to our ministers. And in this trio, forbearance is often the overlooked member. But forbearance is often the key to our getting on together, the expression of the love that covers a multitude of sins. Forbearance is the recognition that we are all frail and flawed, that we'll all stuff up, that we will all have ways of relating to each other that may irritate and that perfection will elude us as individuals and as congregations. It's that recognition and then the determination to put up with that imperfection and the mistakes and awkwardness that flow from it and not stop loving one another seeking to help each other persevere as the followers of our Lord Jesus whose gospel has brought us together. So what do you do when your minister sins? What do you do when your minister makes a mistake? Well, be guided by God's word. Never let the serious things slide or overlook repeated or persistent sin because, you know, you think he's gifted or a nice guy or under pressure or it's all too difficult to deal with. Don't do that. Investigate fairly, judge impartially and seek to prevent the possibility by wise and cautious appointments and make use of outside help like the safe church unit or the presbytery. And for all those other issues that might arise in your relationship with your minister, talk to him, not about him. Make the effort to have the conversation be self-aware in the conversation, expect it to be a genuine conversation and always speak in love. That is, relate to him as you would hope we would all relate to each other, as you'd hope people would relate to you. Relationships marked by forgiveness and forbearance are thoughtful love are what we want for us all. And uh, those relationships... Uh, will go a great way to maintaining a healthy relationship with your ministers, encouraging them to persevere in their work and to keep growing in godliness for the good of us all. And what was the outcome of that talk about my shoes and the lawn, just in case you're curious? Well, you might have thought it a little intrusive, but actually that elder spoke in love. He didn't speak to criticise, but to help my work prosper in a community that he knew well and I was new to and where those things mattered to others. He spoke the truth in love and I listened. For open rebuke is better than hidden love and wounds from a friend can be trusted. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have called us into a community where you supply our needs uh, through your spirit and you give us the gifts we need to grow together. And we thank you that you have called us into a community of grace and forgiveness. 
where every believer knows your love. And knowing your love can be changed by your spirit to be loving, forbearing and forgiving. Our Father, we pray that in all our dealings, those things will characterise us to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.